0: Chumba Casino always brings the fun. Play over a 100 different games online for free from anywhere. You could redeem some serious prizes. Chumba. ChumbaCasino.com. Live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. Were prohibited by and T-plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mobile phone companies say they offer home internet. But if their internet comes from a cell phone network, you should know. It's just phone internet, not home internet. Keep your home up to speed with Cox. Cox Internet is faster and has more reliable download speeds than 5G home Internet. Cox is the real home Internet you're looking for. Based on Cox analysis of UCLA speed test intelligence data, Q3 2022 and Cox serviceable areas. Visit Cox.com Internet for details. From the era that brought you names like Chamberlain, Russell and West. That's Chamberlain. He's got it. Jerry West made it from the other side of the mid strike. To the glory days of Magic and Kareem. Johnson is on there celebrating. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is on the brink of an NBA all-time record. From a time where last-second shots were expected. Here comes Kobe. From way outside. Got it! Oh, man! Gets it to LeBron. For three for the win. Yes! LeBron James! Oh! And rings were handed out like candy. Here's Jordan. It was yes! all over. The Chicago Bulls have won. It's Duncan Dynasty. Your host Garrett Bougay, and it starts right now. Welcome to a new episode of Duncan Dynasty. I'm your host Garrett Bougay, and this week it's going to be a solo episode. I'm going to talk about uh, a team from the Eastern Conference and a team from the Western Conference. Talk about four players that uh, and some stats involved with them that I found uh, pretty interesting. Uh, And uh, at the end of the episode, I'm also going to break down my thoughts on the Manchester City versus Liverpool showdown over the weekend. I apologize about uh, last week. I wasn't able to get a guest, uh, so I decided to uh, take the week off. And if you're you're aching for content from me, uh, I actually uh, spent a lot of that time last week working on an article that I ended up writing for thedraftclass.com. It's an article on the Dallas Mavericks. It's up on the site. It's a pretty long-form article. I talk about uh, most of the key contributors on the roster and go in pretty good detail. Spent uh, a good amount of time on that, so uh, I urge you to check that out. But uh, let's let's get underway, and the, the team I want to discuss first and the team I decided to, to break down from the Eastern Conference is the Cleveland Cavaliers. Of course, the Cavs surprising some people in the early going. They are in the seventh spot. In the Eastern Conference, sitting with a 4-6 and six overall record, 20th ranked on offense, and a very surprising 16th on the defensive end of the floor. Uh, so the, the first guy I'm going to, to break down for the Cavs is Darius Garland, of course. Garland, the number 5 pick in the NBA draft, and uh, he's, he's struggled uh, quite a bit in terms of his shooting numbers, you know, shooting just 25% from downtown on uh, on 3.2 attempts per game. But uh, frankly, I, I don't think that's too much of a reason to be terribly concerned. I mean, you look at a guy like Trey Young last year. I think for the first couple months of the season, was shooting around 25%. So uh, you know, Garland certainly has struggled with the shot in the early going, but that's not. Super uncommon for for rookie point guards. Uh, the 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 big concern for me is that uh, that just the 3.2 attempts. Not really that confident shooting them up. Trey Young was uh, even despite missing a lot was still taking quite a few from that area. And and Garland instead of taking threes has has focused more of his uh, diet in the mid range. He's taking 42 percent of his shots in that area. Uh, and, uh, again, just 30% of his shots from three. So, you know, he's been really happy and content taking that floater from about 15 feet, which, you know, he's capable of knocking down. He's certainly made a few, uh, but, uh, defenses are going to be pretty content giving that up and it's not going to lead to super efficient numbers. He's also, you know, because he's, Just super willing to take those floaters. He's not getting all the way to the rim, and therefore not uh, really getting to the free throw line. His free throw rate is uh, is relatively poor at just 13.9 percent. But looking at the defensive end, you know, I I talked about the Cavs uh, right now are 16th in the league on defense. He hasn't been too bad on on that end of the floor. You know, he's he's not he's not uh, super aggressive. And he hardly ever commits a foul. He's got a 1.7% foul uh, foul rate, uh, but uh, you know, 1.4 steals per 36 minutes is is a pretty good number. And he does that, and uh, you know, he's not a guy that I that I'm noticing gambling too often. He he does it within the context of playing, uh, you know, man-to-man straight-up defense. So uh, he's got pretty quick hands, able to. Uh, uh, I I saw him in the, in the game where the Cavs blew out the Knicks. Uh, he was, uh, you know, he had a play where he just read the pass, got his hands up real quick and, and picked off a pass from about two feet away and then led, uh, led Sexton for a transition bucket. So uh, pretty good hands. Yeah, the, the defense, you know, I've noticed a few errors here or there, but, uh, you know, he, he's certainly well, uh, well above where Sexton was as a defender, as a rookie. Uh, so, you know, despite his lack of size and strength, he's he's been all right on that end of the floor. So yeah, the, the shooting numbers certainly uh, have got to improve. Uh, hopefully he'll get to, he'll get to the free throw line more and, and work on those. Uh, so another thing that uh, Trey Young is really good at is drawing those kind of BS fouls on defenders when they put a hand in there, doing that sweep through move. That's something I think Garland may, may pick up as, as time goes on. But also, just working on the ratio of those jumpers. I think even though he's struggling from three, the stroke looks good. I'd like to see him be more confident in stepping up and taking those off the dribble threes. And, uh, you know, if those start to go down, that makes him a real big threat and, and draws defenders 25 feet away from the basket. And that sets up uh, things for his teammates. Moving on to another player on Cleveland, a guy that has had a tremendous year is Tristan Thompson. And it may not come as a huge shocker because Tristan Thompson is on a contract year. So a contract year, Tristan has been quite a beast thus far. He's averaging career highs in points, rebounds, assists, steals, and blocks in his age 28 season. Uh, His usage is at nearly 20% this year, which is uh, quite high compared to, you know, Looking at the last three seasons, LeBron was there. Tristan's usage was between 11.3 and 12.6 percent, so he's getting the ball more. He's being more aggressive on the offensive end. He's a lot more confident as well. We've even seen him hit three three pointers so far in the early going of this campaign. Uh, you know, and and Thompson's play has really benefited the Cavs in general. Uh, this one, this stat just jumped off the page. The Cavs net rating is 29.8 points better with Tristan on the court this year. You you heard me right and that was not a uh you know, that was not a mistake. 29.8 points better with Tristan on the court. They're plus 14.4 on the offensive end and they're also giving up 15.4 points less on the defensive end when Tristan is is out there. And I do think part of that uh, that defensive net rating is a little bit of random noise, as opponents are shooting 4% worse on all threes when uh, when he is on the floor, and uh, you know most of the time I don't think Tristan is is affecting a lot of those three point attempts. Uh, so so the the defense may come back to earth a little bit, and I think the Cavs, if they finish the season 16th on defense, I would be pretty surprised by that. Uh, but, but the rim protection is real. You know, he's averaging a career high in blocks at around 1.4 a game. He's also in the 75th percentile this year on uh, opponent effective field goal percentage at the basket. And, uh, you know, that's something that he's uh, kind of, that's been kind of one of his Achilles heels on the defensive end is his lack of ability as a shot blocker. Uh, he's been in the 47th percentile or lower in six of his eight seasons in the league at, at, in, in that stat. In terms of uh, effective opponent effective field goal percentage at the rim. Uh, but, but Thompson has been terrific. The energy is there. The offensive rebounding has been there like it has for for throughout most of his career, and he certainly is energized and, and motivated to get uh, one more big contract uh, before uh, his career is through. Uh, the next guy I want to discuss is uh, is Kevin Love, and Love is, uh, is shooting an absurd 69% on long twos this year, and uh, overall he's at 53% in the mid-range. So uh, doing a really good job in that face-up game, getting the ball in the post and facing up and just shooting right over the top if the defender doesn't uh, crowd him. And, uh, yeah, he's been really effective at that. He's averaging 12.9 rebounds a game, getting back to those numbers that he had uh, on the glass when he was, uh, you know, a star in Minnesota. But surprisingly, out of those 12.9 rebounds, not really doing it much on the offensive end. Just 1.1 offensive rebounds per game. So being a very dominant defensive rebounder so far, uh, and and you know, part of the reason maybe he's not getting as many offensive rebounds as he has in the past is again just because. The way the game is played now, he's spacing the floor. Uh, you know, he's 25 feet from the basket uh, because he's such a prolific shooter and a, a shooter that opponents respect. He's he's nowhere near the rim to be able to get those offensive rebounds, but uh, still doing a pretty good job overall on the glass. He's also uh, you know drawing a, a lot of fouls and using that to boost his efficiency he's got a 54.5% free throw rate. Uh, he's, he's become really good at, uh, at, at drawing those BS fouls that I, I mentioned that, that Garland would benefit from, from learning. He, he uses that sweep through move. He uses the shot fake. He'll sometimes jump sideways or forward to draw contact and, and bait the officials into those calls. Uh, so, so he has done a really good job as far as that's concerned. And, uh, you know, again, you, you, you factor in that free throw rate combined with the, the 69% on long twos. And uh, this year he's got a, uh, a true shooting percentage of 62.6%. So Love has been the fulcrum of this Cavs offense. And he's he's made them, uh, you know, a little bit below league average on that end of the floor. But given the talent around him, uh, that that is pretty impressive. Another guy I'm sure a lot of people are interested in when uh, when. I'm discussing the Cleveland Cavaliers is Colin Sexton. Uh, Sexton, he's uh, uh, you know playing off the ball a, a lot more this year. You know Garland, the the uh, the number five overall pick, he's stepped in and, and taken the starting point guard role, and Sexton has been more of the shooting guard. So Sexton isn't handling the ball as much as he did as a rookie, and uh, because of that, he's uh, his shot profile is a little bit better. Uh, He's cut down on the mid-range from 45 to 39% of his shot attempts. And uh, also, you know, the three-point shot for him appears to be legit. You know, he shot the ball incredibly well towards the latter half of last season, and that has continued this year. He's upped his volume to nearly five three-point attempts per game, and he's converting them at a 39.6% clip. And uh, he's doing incredibly well from the corners, uh, this won't keep up, but he's shooting over eighty percent on corner threes this season. Uh, so uh, you know he has just been absolutely automatic from there. Uh, another uh, another stat that's down for him is his assist totals, and again I think that's part because he's he's off the ball more. But I also am a little bit concerned that uh, I haven't seen much improvement in in many areas of his offensive game. You know he's he, he's not finishing much better at the rim. He's, uh, again, not—his uh, assist rates are about the same, and uh, he's not getting to the free-throw line any more often than he did last season either. So, uh, you know, the offensive end, again, I think the, the, the shooting has proven to be legit, and, and that's going to make him a productive offensive player for years to come. Uh, but, but how much so will depend on the other areas of his game, the ability to, to pass the basketball, his ability to finish at the basket— and make his teammates better. Uh, but it, you know the the one real positive sign that I've seen is his defense. You know, last season he was one of the worst defenders in the league, if not the worst. Uh, and this year, the effort, the awareness has been substantially improved. And uh, you know, you see a lot more of those highlight plays where he's able to get around screens and and crowd the ball handler and make them uncomfortable. Uh, And and there are fewer of those plays off the ball where he just is completely lost or, uh, you know, losing sight of his man, those sorts of things. You know, he's still making mistakes here or there. He's still not, I would say, uh, you know, an above-average defender by any means. But uh, he has shown uh, significant improvements there, and I think uh, uh, Coach Beeline can be credited a little bit, uh, at least for for his improvements on that end of the floor and the Cavs in general on, on that side of the ball so so sexton again he's a guy that uh, that I think hopefully will will turn into a, a solid starting caliber player but uh, anything beyond that at this point I think is uh, is a bit beyond uh, what I would expect especially given we haven't seen much progress in uh, you know again the, the passing side of the ball and, and also you know I, I think his ceiling as a defender is maybe slightly above average at best so uh, and especially if he's going to be playing. At that two spot, uh, so so that's all I had as far as the uh, the Cleveland Cavaliers. Uh, so let's move on now. I wanted to talk about a Western Conference team that I haven't uh, gotten to discuss yet on my podcast, and that is the Utah Jazz. The Jazz sitting with an eight and three record so far on the season. They're twenty third on offense and second in defense. So uh, you know, a lot of people coming in, including myself, thought that they had the potential to be. A top 10 unit on both ends of the floor, and the offense has not been there in large part due to Mike Conley's massive struggles at the beginning of the year. Um, but uh, Conley seems to be picking it up late. I'll talk about him here in a minute. But uh, the, the the first guy, and probably the most important guy to discuss with the Utah Jazz is Donovan Mitchell. And um, you know when I'm look when I was looking over his uh, his numbers on cleaning the glass, one stat that, that sort of surprised me. In terms of his shot profile, 21% of his shots are coming from the long two range, that long mid-range jumper, and that's uh, that's a jump from just 11% last season. So 10% more of his shots are coming from the most inefficient area on the floor. That's definitely a concern, and you know, especially considering you know, again, coming into the season with the additions of Conley and Bogdanovich. Uh, My thought was that that was going to allow Mitchell to be a lot more efficient and and take better shots and not have to carry the offense as much. Um, And, you know, maybe part of the reason that that number is high right now, and again, we're only uh, about a tenth into the season at this stage, uh, a part of that reason could be, again, uh, Conley's struggle shooting, forcing Mitchell to do a little bit more, take on a larger burden, uh, and a larger role in the offense, but but certainly that number is a bit concerning, and you know he's still been able to actually improve his efficiency in large part because he's been able to make fifty two percent of those long two two point jumpers, so the shot profile hasn't hurt him because he's been able to hit a uh, you know unsustainable amount of those shots. But, you know, if that number starts to come down and it's still that large of a portion of his shot profile, that will uh, will eat into his efficiency quite a bit. The, the the good news as far as Mitchell's offensive game is, you know, with, with Bogdanovich and Conley, the spacing is definitely better. You know, teams respect those guys as off-ball shooters a lot more than what the Jazz have had in the past with the likes of uh, Rubio and Favors. So that has opened up the basket a little bit more. And uh, despite the fact that Mitchell isn't shooting anymore uh, in terms of frequency at the rim, he is shooting a better percentage. He's uh, shooting at 65% at the bucket compared to just 59% last season. So, uh, you know, the efficiency is improved for Mitchell. The true shooting percentage, at a, a tick over 57%. So that's uh, very encouraging. But again, that shot profile and those percentages is something I'm going to keep an eye on. As as the year goes on, and 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 again, maybe that's something that as Conley uh, gets better and uh, Mitchell doesn't have to take as much of a uh, a, a large role in terms of usage, uh, he'll he'll stop taking as many of those inefficient shots and focus more on the basket and the three point line. Um, so yeah, I, I've mentioned Conley a few times. Might as well get to him because you know again one of the the key acquisitions for this Jazz ball club, and. You know, I mentioned the shooting struggles. It was awful at the beginning of the year. Shot just four of 27 in the first two games, including a game where he went one of 16, uh, and then also one of 11 on threes in those first two. So obviously the worst start imaginable for Conley in a jazz uniform. But, uh, you know, he's picked it up since then. I don't know if it was jitters with a new club, or maybe he was a little out of shape coming in from the offseason. Uh, but uh, he, he has picked it up as of late. Over his last seven games, he's shooting 45.8% from the field and uh, 43.1% from three. So very much more Mike Conley-esque numbers there. And uh, the fact that Utah is at eight and three and have the 23rd-ranked offense and Conley has struggled this much is is a really positive sign if you're a Jazz fan because, again, I can only imagine the offense getting better from here. I wouldn't be shocked if they're, you know, towards the middle of the pack on offense uh, sooner rather than later. You know, I, I projected that they would be a borderline top 10 offense, and maybe they won't ever get to that stage. But I think they're going to be better than 23rd. And and given the, uh, the fact that they've been able to maintain this defense without the likes of, of uh, Derek Favors on this roster, is a major plus. Um, so so the next guy I'll talk about is, uh, is the stifled tower, the French rejection, and that is Rudy Gobert. And he's been the key reason why the Jazz have been able to maintain this elite defense despite not having as much defensive talent around him. And again, this is why I've been so high on Gobert over the last couple of years, is I, I truly do think that he is the type of defensive player that you can build a system around, and even with average defensive talent around him, I think he can make your team a top five defensive unit, and and that is just that provides so much value. And what's shocking though this season is he's averaging just 1.3 blocks per ball game, which is his lowest total there since his rookie year. But uh, he's still making a huge impact on the defensive end of the floor. In large part due to this number from cleaning the glass, opponents are shooting 7.7 fewer shots at the rim when Gobert is on the floor. Which, uh, you know, that's something that he's always been great at: is is uh, you know preventing teams from even taking those shots because he's such an intimidating presence. But that is uh, that number this season is a career best for him. Uh, his previous best was 6.2 uh, percent. So obviously making a huge impact, and again, shots at the rim are the most efficient shot in basketball, so just eliminating those from being taken is such a huge benefit to a team's defense. He's also making a huge difference on the offensive end of the floor as well this year. With the Jazz, you know, again, adding shooting and really spacing the floor, uh, his rolls to the rim have been so effective. Utah shoots 8.5 percent more shots at the rim when Gobert is on the floor, and they shoot 9.8 percent better uh, due to again his uh, his ability to catch and finish on those lobs, and his uh, you know his gravity on those plays allows the Jazz to make 8.2 percent more of their corner threes when he is on the court. So uh, he has made a huge impact on both ends of the floor, and again he's been. Um, you know in my mind one of the top 15 players in the league so far this season Uh, another guy another key acquisition for Utah the final guy I'll talk about as far as the jazz and that is uh, Boyan Bogdanovich Bogdanovich is absolutely lighting teams up from downtown he's hitting 43.8 percent of his threes on a career-high 6.4 attempts per game and you know this Jazz team has been uh, has always been under Quinn Snyder a team that uh, runs a really fluid offense uh, a system that uh, emphasizes ball movement and man movement and, and creates a lot of open looks for shooters and a big reason why the Jazz uh, you know acquired a guy like Bogdanovich and acquired a guy like Mike Conley is because in seasons past they've created those open looks but just have not been able to knock them down. And, you know, Bogdanovich is hitting them. And, and Conley, uh, you know, after that rough start, is, is hitting those shots. And Mitchell's knocking them down. So, uh, the, you know, they've got guys like Royce O'Neal, uh and, uh, you know, knocking shots down. Ingles has, has struggled quite a bit. Uh, he's, he's been a bit of a concern. But, but overall, Bogdanovich has been a great signing, a great move for their offense. And, again, I think once Conley really picks up his offensive game, uh, you know they they've got that three-headed monster in Conley, Mitchell, and Bogdanovich, and those three guys really do uh, really do give the Jazz enough uh, offensively. You know when you when you think about offense in the NBA, defenses get locked in, and if one guy gets hot, they start to focus in on him and try to cut him off. Uh, and the Jazz now with with three different guys can can have different periods where they're all going. Uh, I watched their uh, their game against Milwaukee recently, a game that was one of the games of the year so far, and Bogdanovich hit hit the game-winning three uh, at the end of the fourth quarter to, uh, to, to send the Jazz off uh, on their home court with a victory and really welcome him to, to Utah Jazz Nation. Uh, but, you know, the, the Jazz had this huge lead at the end of the first half, and Milwaukee comes storming back in the third quarter, and Bogdanovich... Uh, really, uh, really was able to pull the Jazz out of a rut and and went on a nice little run himself, uh, hitting threes, getting to the bucket, and uh, again, that's so important. You know, in previous years, Donovan Mitchell was really the only guy that could get the Utah Jazz offense out of a rut if they were struggling, uh, and and he was the only guy that could uh, stem runs. And now with, with the Jazz having three such guys. Makes it so much easier and will prevent uh, teams from from going on too many runs. Uh, but uh, Quinn Snyder has done an excellent job in terms of drawing up uh, sets to get Bogdanovich going to his stronger right hand. You know, he starts on the kind of in the right corner, gets a screen from Gobert, gets a pass uh, on the move, going towards his right hand. Uh, you know, with momentum and that's been really effective. He's able to get to the rim on those sorts of plays and if he uh, if the defense collapse, he's able to, to drive and kick. But uh, Snyder does such a great job, not only with Ingles. With him, uh, he, he uh, starts Ingles on the left side of the floor and has screen set so Ingles can get going on his left hand. He's done the, the exact uh, opposite with Bogdanovich, getting him going right, and it's been very effective. The Jazz, uh, I think, are going to be an excellent team, and, and it would not shock me if this team gets to uh, 60 wins again considering they are 8-3 and three with the 23rd-ranked offense, and, and I expect that to, to pick up significantly, uh, I, I think this team can win a heck of a lot of ball games this season. So, so that's it for the NBA talk, and I saved uh, the, the final thing, my, uh, my talk, on, on a recent soccer match for the end in case uh, any of you NBA diehards aren't interested in this. Uh, you, can, you can turn it off now, but I appreciate you listening. Uh, the, uh, the game I wanted to discuss was the, uh, the recent Liverpool-Manchester City game, a huge game in the Premier League, a huge game in terms of the title race. Uh, the, these two teams, uh, it came down to the wire last year with Man City winning by a single point over Liverpool to take the uh, Premier League title. Uh, and Liverpool getting a 3-1 win at home over Manchester City to take a 9-point edge over City and an eight-point edge over second-place Leicester City. And that was a heck of a a heck of a football game. There were plenty of goals. There were plenty. There was uh, plenty of controversy with, of course, the the handball decision, and I'll talk about that in a minute. And there was also just so many exquisite passing sequences from both sides. Of course, so much talent on the field when those two teams get together. Uh, you know, you, you look at Liverpool and the likes of Sala, Firmino, and Mane up front with uh, their fullbacks and, and the skill that those guys have. And then Man City with, with the likes of Silva and Aguero and uh, Raheem Sterling, who's been one of the best players in the league this year. Uh, just uh, so much talent on the pitch. Uh, but uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about the handball controversy. Uh, if you didn't see the game, what essentially happened was... Uh, it was a play involving Bernardo Silva and the likes of uh, Trent Alexander-Arnold. The ball initially uh, ricocheted off of uh, Bernardo Silva's arm, and, and, the, and you know, it, was, it was not intentional in any way whatsoever. The ball just kind of bounced up, and, and Silva had no idea, and it, it was also about a foot away from him when it, it made contact, so he had no chance, no time to recognize the ball and get out of the way. So the ball deflects off of Silva's arm and heads towards, uh, uh, basically worked as a pass into the center of the box, and uh, Alexander Arnold was sitting there, and uh, uh, he had his arm directly down to his side, but the ball struck his arm, and uh, it prevented the ball from potentially getting to Raheem Sterling, who could have gotten a a goal-scoring opportunity. Uh, pep obviously uh, the the manager of Man City was furious that uh, that no handball was called uh, but frankly I I, I think uh, I agreed with the decision by Michael Oliver and and to me there should be two ways to potentially interpret these handball calls and and either way you could interpret it I think um, both would lead to to no penalty decision there the the, the first way I think would be you know uh, if you're just gonna make it so that Handball is, is just literal uh, the most literal definition imaginable. Where if the ball hits a guy in the arm or hand, it's a it's a foul. Um, and if if you rule it that way, uh, you know as soon as the ball hit Bernardo Silva's arm, it would be a dead ball and, and Liverpool would get possession. So the it wouldn't even matter the fact that the ball hit Alexander Arnold's arm because the the play would be would have been called dead at that point. Uh, but the, the, the other way to interpret it, which is, this is how I would interpret it, is to not just think of it in terms of it uh, being a super literal uh, interpretation. So, so then you have to factor in several things. Obviously, the ball has to make contact with the arm or hand, but that isn't the only determining factor. The other factors would be, is the arm in an unnatural position? You know, So if you have your arm sticking out to the side, or if you have your arm up over your head, you know those sorts of things, and the ball strikes it that way, then it would be a handball. But Alexander Arnold's arm was directly down to his side in a completely natural position, so uh, it, it wouldn't be um, a penalty due to that. And then the only other thing for me would be is if you make a motion towards the ball, which causes the contact. So, you know, say for instance you're a decent um, distance away as the player from the ball and you have an opportunity to see the trajectory of where the ball is going and you move your body or you lean your shoulder and your arm towards the ball and then it strikes your arm or hand, then obviously that would also be a handball. But again, that's not something Alexander-Arnold did. Uh, I, I don't believe he, he made an intentional motion at all towards the football. So um, I, again, I think with either interpretation, uh, I, I think it was the correct call on the field. And what what seemed to be the argument for not only Pep, but uh, also some of the people on the, uh, the NBC Sports uh, network, uh, uh, some of the analysts working there, was essentially that the ball was too close for Bernardo Silva to get out of the way, but it was... Um, you know, the uh, Alexander Arnold had enough time uh, to see the ball coming that he could have avoided it. But to me, that just makes it such a subjective call then, because at that point, then you've got the, the referee has to determine, okay, how close do you have to be before you have enough time to get out of the way? You know, and again, I think the more, or the excuse me, the less subjective calls you can make uh, a referee have to decide upon, the better. So I prefer these handball decisions to be as objective as possible and uh, I believe if you do if you look at it that way um, it uh, it was the right call on the field. but uh, a couple of guys I wanted to talk about from from Liverpool in that game that I thought were so impressive. One is Trent Alexander Arnold, the guy that uh, I just spent a lot of time talking about in terms of potentially committing a handball, but on the offensive end, he is absolutely brilliant. I believe he has uh, solidified himself as the best right back in the world. Uh, His cross field passes to fellow fullback Andy Robertson are so difficult to defend because, you know, defenses in not only basketball, but also in soccer are designed to overload to one side of the pitch. Um, And, you know, Alexander Arnold can hit that ball on such a line, and he also can hit it with fade, so it actually leads uh, Robertson towards the opposing goal. And then, you know, it also, uh, that pass also accentuates the best aspects of Robertson's game because he is so good at that early cross, hitting the ball before the players uh, have even gotten into the box. And uh, that led to uh, the, the second goal for Liverpool. Uh, where Salah had that gorgeous header, uh, but uh, absolutely terrific play from Alexander Arnold. He is uh, such a creative and ingenious passer, and uh, not only the, uh, the ability to spot those passes, but the execution to be able to hit those balls. I mean, few people in the world can execute that, and uh, he is still such a young player too with, with so much potential. Uh, Jorginho Wijnaldum in the midfield was absolutely sensational. He honestly looked like peak Luka Modric in that game. He was everywhere, you know, tracking back and, and defending, um, being an outlet for passes, getting into the appropriate spaces. And then once he was on the ball, just so calm and skilled with his dribbling and his uh, ball control. Um, you know, he had a couple of moves where he did a double touch where he hits it with one foot and then. Uh, you know, to get it away from the defender and then hit it with the other to get him going in the direction he wants to go. Um, You know, Wijnaldum was absolutely sensational. And this Liverpool team in general has got to be the best football team I have ever witnessed. They just, they have no weaknesses. You know, their front three uh, is just so great. You know, maybe they don't have quite the talent that, say, Barcelona when they had Messi, Suarez, and Neymar. Obviously, this Liverpool front three isn't quite as talented as them, but in terms of, you know, meshing and uh, a blending of skills uh, and and that, uh, that chemistry that they have, uh, I think they're right up there with any front three in the history of the game. And, you know, you talk about the midfield, again, guys that, uh, you know, aren't super heralded as, uh, you know, these great players, but Uh, They're all such hard workers. They all are such good box-to-box players. They've got such great all-around games. They can pass. They can defend. Uh, You know, they they can even score. uh, They can can nick you a goal every now and again, as uh, Fabinho did in this game in stunning fashion in the early stages. Uh, So the midfield is excellent. Of course, the defense with the fullbacks uh, going forward on offense. And, of course, uh, you know, Virgil Van Dyke, the best center back in the world right now, and uh, one of the best goalkeepers as well. In Allison, uh, they they are just such a great all around team. They're uh, they're great in terms of possession play, but they're also great in terms of the counterattack. You know, they can they can um, quickly blend between either style when they need to, and they did so with. Uh, To great effect in this game against Man City. You know, they had moments in the game where they were dominating possession, but then at other times they were able and comfortable to sit back and let Man City come at them and then attack them with with counter-attacking play. And uh, they are just such a brilliant team, such a fun team to watch as well. And uh, to have played, you know, essentially close to a third of this season, to have gone, uh, you know, last year, the entire year losing only a single game, and that was to Man City, uh, and this year still, having, uh, still going unbeaten, uh, just an incredible run, winning the Champions League last year, potential to win both the Champions League and the uh, Premier League this season. Jurgen Klopp has done such an amazing job, and it will be fascinating to see uh, the rest of the Premier League season as it goes. Well, that'll do it for, uh, for this episode of Duncan Dynasty. Thank you so much for, for listening. And again, I apologize uh, if you prefer me uh, discussing these, uh, these sports topics with, uh, with a uh, guest. Uh, don't worry. I prefer to do that as well, and I will try to get that to you next week. Uh, hopefully, we'll have a, a fun guest for you. And again... If, uh, if you're looking for more of my content, you can check out my article on the Dallas Mavericks on the draftclass.com. Check out all of the draft co- class content. They do a great job over there. Um, Scott Levine does a great podcast called The Scouting Goggles for the Bench Mob. Uh, I would urge you to check that out as well. And yeah, the other thing I always ask is uh, if you're willing to. Uh, Go on to uh, iTunes and uh, and and give me a rating and review and of course subscribe to the show if you're enjoying it. Uh, you can do it on uh, any podcast player of your choosing, but uh, it's uh, it's preferred if it's Apple because they are still the leader in the podcast industry. Uh, but I also have a pod- I also have my podcast on on Spotify as well, so you can subscribe to that if that is your preferred listening option. Well, again, thank you so much for uh, for tuning in and uh, have a great rest of your day. Does your health routine for the new year include eye care? Well, now that you can use your renewed vision benefits, it's easy to add it to the routine. Visit pearlvision.com and schedule exams for the whole family. They work with all major vision plans, including iMed, and they'll cover your cost of insurance copay or eye exam. Valid prescription required. Valid at participating locations. Restrictions apply. Taxes extra. See store for details. Ends 3:31, 2023 Exams available at the Independent Doctor of Optometry at or next to Pearl Vision. Some doctors employed by Pearl Vision.